0: What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ladies Let's Talk About Sex. I'm your host, Felicia, and I'm a lady talking about sex. And this week, we have an incredibly special guest with us, someone who is literally in the hospital taking so much time out of their day to come speak with us. We have Dr. Phillips here. Dr. Phillips, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Um, My name is Camila Phillips. I'm based out of New York City. I practice in Manhattan. Uh, I am an obstetrician gynecologist. That means I deliver babies and take care of women 100% of my time.
0: And I'm so incredibly excited to have you here on the podcast. Um, We are doing a very different episode this week because we usually do talk about, you know, sex and womanhood and all the great things that kind of come to that. But um, as the climate of the world has shifted drastically during, you know, this whole COVID situation... um, A lot of issues about race and systemic racism and racism within the healthcare system have, you know, been brought to light. Um, And there's been a lot of protests globally um, in regards to a bunch of, um, well, too many deaths. um,
1: Too many to even name. Too many to
0: even count, but um, deaths because of police brutality, especially in, the US, which is definitely not our entire brand, but it's something that I would like to incorporate into our discussion surrounding sex and surrounding um, healthcare. So Dr. Phillips is here today to talk to us about racism within the healthcare system. Um, because I think a lot of people don't understand how racism isn't just this one thing that you know people have and it's in their inherent biases, it's something that has essentially let our society grow upon and be built upon um, and it's something that's super ingrained and instilled in all of our institutions and so we're going to focus today on healthcare because dr phillips is an ob-gyn and she's super awesome and i'm so excited to have her um, maybe dr phillips do you want to just give people a little bit more of an understanding of um like who you are, why you got into medicine, why you like taking care of women and mm-hmm. all that great stuff?
1: Yeah. So I was raised in a predominantly female household. Um, my grandmother, aunt's mother certainly I had male role models and figures in my life, but they had such an amazing impact on me in terms of my growth Um, mentally spiritually encouraging me do things go places live my life that I just really have always been in love with female energy so um, I left my house at about age 16 I did an international uh, year in El Salvador when I was in high school and that was really my first eye-opening experience of poverty women's health the importance of pregnancy care and the importance of elevating um the the women in the household as a means of taking care of everyone in the house so for example when a woman works at, or has some financial independence the children do better the husband does better the community does better and i, I learned that in high school Uh, So I took that emphasis and I went to Stanford University for undergrad and I studied human biology and I did an emphasis in women's health and human sexuality. So I've been talking about sex a long time, (laughs) sister. (laughs) I've been talking about sex a long time. And um, I, you know, really had an idea then that I was going to go to medical school, but that's when I solidified my decision to go to medical school. Uh, I worked at the hiv office in san francisco on vaccine trials for a little while and then i applied and got accepted to medical school
0: oh my god yeah that's Um, incredible
1: yeah it's i've been working with women and loving women my whole life Uh, when i was in medical school i went to the university of southern california so i moved to la for medical school and i did more international work Um, i worked in cuba Tanzania, Ghana, and really got an international flavor for um, medicine, women's health, and how important, again, going back to women, taking care of women as the pillar of the community, how important it is to take care of her. And that's when I decided to um, proceed with residency in OBGYN
0: oh my god that's incredible you've definitely lived a full life already (laughs) wow um well i guess as we start kind of discussing you know healthcare systems and the inherent racism within um the healthcare system now we're going to be talking on a north american basis canada and the u.s are pretty now there are a few. a few differences within the Canadian system um, versus the American system, but I don't really like to play the whole "we're in Canada, we are better" card because I love I love being Canadian, but it's not it's we're not that far beyond the system of America. So um, th- those are the healthcare systems that we're going to discuss, and I think. I kind of just want to break down like the pillars um, that allow systemic racism to kind of survive in the healthcare system. Like, how does that foundation begin and kind of
1: grow into the healthcare system we have now? Ooh, so that's loaded, right? So I think the foundation really started in you know when the first Africans set foot on this soil. And the reason I say that is because American slavery is a very unique institution, unlike any slavery that was otherwise experienced in the world. And it started a system that was based on discrimination solely because of skin color. And we hadn't seen that before. Um, It positioned enslaved people, specifically African people, in a light that made them, um, unhuman. They literally, it's called chattel slavery and they literally were considered on the level of ox, cow, pig. These were not humans. And so when you start with the premise of this entire group of people not being human, it really sets the stage for economic, cultural, social, medical oppression. So I think it's important to understand the roots really started with slavery.
0: Yeah, I it's definitely something that I think people overlook um, because, you know, it's I, I feel like a lot
1: of the easy way out is to say, oh, it happened so long ago. Oh, it's over. It's been over for 400 years. But the generational effects of slavery, the institutional effects literally the laws, the Constitution, which, you know, said that black people were not even a full person, um, didn't give us the right to vote too much later. Laws such as Jim Crow that really cemented racial inequality. These things, these concepts don't just disappear with a swipe of a pin with the freedom of slaves and these these concepts these generational beliefs don't just magically go away and we're still living um with their repercussions
0: i a hundred percent and i think that it's it's ignorant to say to not even be able to acknowledge that at this point because we all know that one person that has those beliefs or is ignorant to that to a certain regard and It's important to recognize where that stems from because I think that that's where the education lies and that's where we need to reform and change people's understanding. Um, But there's a lot of, because you know how the healthcare system is so multifaceted and you know um, accessibility and funds and um, structures and even you know the unfortunate you know discriminatory doctor or you know, worker within the system affects um, those who need the services. Can you maybe elaborate more on the different, um, like maybe smaller pillars onto like how um, like black people essentially don't get the same services that white people do?
1: Mm-hmm. So one pillar that you have to kind of consider is economic um, tax dollars drive the resources that a community receives. So if you have a group of uh, poor people in contrast to a group of richer people, because it's based on tax dollars and revenue, the poor areas are less likely to receive the schools, you know, good schools that ultimately lend themselves to higher education, more people going to college, more people seeking, um, uh, higher levels of education, creating doctors, right? That's one aspect. From an economic perspective, there are less likely to be one hospitals, So that means that I have to travel from my home as opposed to across the street for the hospital, but maybe several miles away to access care. So there's a physical barrier there. But also, if I do have a hospital, the resources to maintain and staff that hospital might not be there. So we're talking anything from nursing, beds, doctors, MRI machines, CAT scans, ORs, the quality and accessibility of the care that I might need based on an economic basis is less likely to be there because the tax revenue is not there. Also with the economic base comes affluence and with affluence comes political clout. So you have people who are advocating for you and people who look like you. And, um, that is another factor that influences black healthcare. If we don't have advocates who are, um, looking out for us on these, um, Civil levels, the local level, the you know higher governmental levels, then it makes it more challenging to make sure that interest and tax dollars are directed toward us. So that's one piece of the puzzle. What we cover um, that sort of encompasses. It's, it sucks how like money is involved in everything, but right, it covers education and you know policies and access. Um, those are three really big pillars. Um. Also, as it relates to African Americans receiving unequal care, you know, I go back to history. There are a lot of misconceptions, I'll speak specifically to like medical education right now, that make people in their inherent bias not treat women, uh, people of color the same as whites. There is enough documentation um, that shows that. There are medical students, trainees, doctors who believe that black people bleed more. Uh, black people have thicker skin, like literally textually thicker skin that um, African-Americans have a higher pain tolerance. Uh, I was on a conference call uh, this week and someone was talking about how they brought a representative to their hospital to help with their hemorrhage. And while on stage, the man said, you know, African-American women bleed more. And that's just completely untrue. There is no biological reason that I would bleed more than you would bleed more if we're both cut. But it's these misconceptions, inherent bias, underlying racism that affects medical education. And so Black people aren't um, taken as seriously when it comes to pain. There's a study showing that if two people walk into an ER with a broken bone, the uh, white person is more likely to leave with adequate pain medication than the black person. Again, this conception, misconception that black people feel pain um, less. I will tell you, if both of us fall off a bike, I'm going to be hollering I'm going to be you know, upset. But these um, underpinnings of racism in education um, are still alive and impact our healthcare, both our willingness to seek healthcare and also the delivery of healthcare.
0: It baffles my mind sometimes, and I don't know if I live in this like perfect world up here, but I just think that Like when I see these articles about, you know, medical students assuming that black people don't feel pain,
1: I'm just like, who told you this? Well, someone, right? Someone in their career that is esteemed or they trusted or believed or somewhere in their home, which, you know, we learn these behaviors at home, um, said, well, you know, they don't, they're not like us. They're different than us. Oh, you know they don't feel the same way we do. So you interpret that, it goes into your subconscious, and then it manifests when you're taking care of patients.
0: No, that's, it's super unfortunate. But I actually really like the point you brought up about um, the physical barrier of not having access to hospitals um, and healthcare. I've always lived in a large city, so I've always had access to um a hospital or even like a physicians, whatever. But it's something that I think a lot of us kind of forget, especially those who live in big metropolitan cities because we have access to hospitals. But if your hospital is three and a half hours away from you, I don't think that that's something anyone would, you know, you definitely would second guess yourself just being like, do I really need to drive three hours to go to the hospital? Is it necessary? Or I can't imagine what an ambulance would cost to drive out and get you if your hospital is so far away. So
1: So there's a physical barrier, right? But I live in New York City and for all intents and purposes, you can get in most places. There's also a how do I say this, almost um, one, a psychological barrier. I'll talk about Tuskegee in a second, but for example, during coronavirus, when this started to explode in the city, what happened? Testing was centered in wealthy neighborhoods. So the Upper East Side, Tribeca, Manhattan, basically. poorer parts of Manhattan, but Manhattan, basically, because this is like a huge wealth center, certain places in Brooklyn, Queens. And then that was pretty much about it. No one thought about the Bronx, Harlem, you know, parts of Brooklyn that are primarily um, Latino and African-American. And so while, again, all this attention was being paid to Manhattan, rates were exploding other places. And so I live in a major city. I can get to a hospital in two minutes. But. When you don't have people who think about your community, the services that you need aren't being targeted toward your area, because we were on lockdown, right? No one was supposed to leave the house. And so the testing center sort of went out, but if you don't think about the Bronx, if you don't think about Harlem, if you don't think about and I know your listeners probably like, where are these neighborhoods she's talking about? But they're like primarily minority neighborhoods. You know, the virus is ravaging those neighborhoods while we're catering to um, places that are otherwise wealthy, have great hospitals, et cetera. Um, Have you ever heard of the Tuskegee experiment? Mm -hmm. So I would encourage you to look it up uh, because don't take my word for anything. Let me just get you the year really quick. So the other part of um, institutionalized racism and a lack of trust that's been fostered in the medical community is the Tuskegee experiment. It was basically a US sanctioned experiment that studied the natural history of syphilis in hopes of developing a cure. And um it was officially called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. And basically it was about six hundred black men, many um like 400 of them had syphilis, 200 of them didn't. And basically researchers followed the men who had syphilis, developed information throughout this timeline that definitely identified syphilis as an STD. We found a cure for syphilis and these men were not offered treatment for syphilis. So a U.S. government sanctioned program continued to watch these men as they gave their wives syphilis, as their children were born with syphilis, to basically see what happens. And these men died horrible deaths because of syphilis. Their wives were infected and suffered from syphilis, their children. I mean, this is generational. Right. And the government knew there was treatment, knew what the disease was. A shot could have cured all of these men, but instead they let the men go on to suffer. And we're talking about into the 70s, which is not that long ago. Um. And so when we ask why African-Americans are hesitant to participate in the medical establishment, come to a hospital, even if it's across the street from their home, like in New York City, we have many hospitals. We have his, the historical overlayings of the Tuskegee experiment that's like, that makes some people take a pause um, from participating in, in medical care.
0: No, a hundred percent and even um Not that this is like any way comparable to that, but when they were testing for birth control, a lot of women got tested and used birth control without knowing the side effects or the repercussions or anything like that. So it's kind of like blindly knowing. Of course, you wouldn't trust the healthcare system. Like it, it hasn't proven you wrong and it still hasn't proven us wrong. And we're living in 2020 with all of these, you know, like the parallel to COVID uh, in in um, New York. And we actually in Montreal, Canada, we do have a parallel to like the Bronx, which is Montreal Nord, which is like of Northern Montreal. There's a huge, huge outbreak over there. And it's because it's a very low income um, community and it does have a lot of visible minorities there as well. So it's not like, Canada's up and clean, you know? <laughs> we still have, no, a hundred percent. But I guess going off of kind of what we discussed with um, the reason why a lot of African-Americans don't necessarily trust the healthcare system, there are a lot of very worrying statistics regarding um African-Americans, especially when we would, we discussed like uh, the pain tolerance and this prejudice that these doctors have inherently kind of sustained in themselves, like high teen pregnancy rates and birthing mortality rates and even, um, and I think this is very overlooked, but like mental health statistics um, within the African-American community. And I know that these are very broad um, kind of stats and, But they're there and it's an after effect of kind of the lack of trust that African-Americans have within the healthcare community. And then the the lack of education and the lack of resources and um, the funds not being there for those communities. So maybe do you want to go and discuss a little bit more about maybe break down like the high teen pregnancies? Because that's something that I think a lot of people don't
1: understand. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm actually the best person to answer that, because in my experience and what I'm seeing, while there's still a higher teenage pregnancy rate, the rates of teenage pregnancy are across the board in the United States has significantly decreased. And so everyone's doing better um, in the United States. Right now, I would say Latinas have the highest rates, followed by African-Americans, followed by white people and really across the board. All the rates have gone down. And that, I believe, is really a factor of getting sex education in schools um, early and consistently getting young girls and boys information on how babies are created and how to prevent them and access to birth control across the board is decreasing um, teen pregnancy rates. So while the rates in, like, I guess the 80s, 90s seemed very alarming, everyone was high. And so now everyone is coming down. And I think that's really just more of an educational For sure. piece.
0: Um, and do you think that the rates regarding birthing mortality uh, within the african community have exactly to do with kind of what we discussed before with like the inherent biases that some people carry with them and then them not believing you know the women giving birth and that kind of thing
1: yeah so that is also multifactorial i wish any of these issues had one sole um answer because we would just fix it. Right. But it's so complicated. Um, Absolutely. Does inherent bias affect the treatment of African-American women when they are pregnant and giving birth? Um, We're not listening when we are saying or when women are saying, you know, something doesn't feel right. I've had this headache for a while. Uh, My baby's not moving as well. We brush those. And I say we because I'm part of the medical community that needs to change. But the medical establishment brushes off those concerns. And so one thing is that women come in further along the scope of a disease when we could have addressed the disease earlier. I think that understanding that there are medical conditions that happen in the African American community. And it's not like white women don't have diabetes and hypertension and are overweight. But because we're specifically talking about this population, I'm mentioning those, you know, being more proactive with those medications to help minimize um, the dangers that are associated with them in pregnancy is key. And yet we still don't do that we don't provide that educational piece to patients themselves or to doctors or to nurses so that we can be on the lookout for um, these issues Um, we just need to keep talking about it more educating people more and giving patients also tools for them to advocate for themselves. Cause I think that's really important. When I have patients who go to the hospital, I'm like, look, you're going to the hospital and I write it down. Dr. Phillips said, I have this, I want this, this, and this done. And you'll follow up with Dr. Phillips when you have the results. You know what I mean? Like helping them use their voice because it's a power dynamic, right? If you're in a new situation for the first time, you might feel a little shy with people that you don't know in an unfamiliar situation and especially around your health. If you're scared saying, well, I need this test or I need that test. Um, We're trying to help women find their voice to be able to do that. So it's it's a big problem. The maternal mortality, um, I, hate like so much. We have to focus on the number. I totally understand it. But like I'm at the point where like, what are we going to do about it? What are we doing about it? And so the piece that I try to focus on is education on all levels. And so that's the patient, myself, her family, you know, helping them understand what it is she needs to do to take best care of herself. The nurses, the residents that I'm training, the doctors, the administration, um, social work, all of these people play a part in making these numbers better. Um, So I'm I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, I hear the numbers, I've heard them so much, what are we doing to fix them? No,
0: 100%, and I think that, I, I love that you recognize education because I fundamentally believe that it all starts there and I th- yeah. <laughs> everything starts. And if we just did it right the first time, it would be so much better. But I think now too, I really like that you point out the community involvement with changing these statistics because when we look at you know systemic racism, it is a communal thing and it is it embodies our institutions and it embodies
1: essentially everything we live in right everything it's in everything and so one of my concerns is that people don't get like fatigue about this conversation because it's everything you know it's everything i'm gonna read this book um it's called even the rat was white and it's basically um a text that psychologically sort of explains how racism has woven itself or i should say racism and a preference for things that are white um and european of origin has woven itself into everything and so even the rat was white refers to even in experimentations like the good white the good rat is the white rat it's like crazy that um it really has woven itself into our language our culture and so we have to really dismantle everything and I focus on education so much because you have to unlearn the history that's been taught to you and I think for some people that's really hurtful to think that like Yes, it wasn't directly me, but I'm living in a system that was created to benefit me because my great great grandfather or grandmother did some messed up things, you know, and I think people have to understand that there's going to be some challenges there with unlearning the things that they thought they knew about their culture or thought they knew about history um, because it all ties into why we are where we are now. You know, did you do you know about um, the Tulsa race massacre? I don't. You're Canadian. I don't expect you to know American history.
0: No, <laughs> I'm so You so <laughs> this American history. But you know what? As a Canadian, I'm 20 now, and I learned at 18 years old that Canadians were slave owners as well. Oh, yeah! I, yeah. I went my whole 18 years thinking...
1: You're not knowing that? We were perfect! Perfect! Well, Canadians are always perfect! <gasps> no, we're <not. laughs> exactly. no, we're not! Exactly. No, we're not. James McGill,
0: the university that I go the to, McGill- slave mm-hmm. owner, and I yes. learned that at 18
1: years old. <laughs> And that's unacceptable because it holds. And again, we're not going to like tear down the university and never name anything after him. But like it really is important to understand like these people have very complicated pasts. We all do. Not everyone is perfect, but we have to learn what came out of the negative that they did said laws or whatever they signed and how it's impacting people today. And we have to unlearn that and tease some of that out because it, it's, it's killing people. It's literally killing people. Um, but really quickly, uh, the Tulsa race riot, long story short, was, um, a race riot where, in Tulsa, where a group of white people destroyed a black community that basically was considered the black Wall Street. So when we talk about poverty, um, this is an example and there's many others in history, but this is a huge example of where black, um, a black self-sustaining community, its own banks, hospitals, schools, churches was literally burned to the ground by a group of white people. And so we talk about why don't why can't black people get there, come out of poverty? Mm, maybe because you burned down our banks like we have to know these stories because it's all interrelated. And, you know. We're not going to heal the hurt of racism um, because it doesn't come to any surprise to me that there were slaves in Canada. But what are we going to do about the impact of that now and if we don't learn these stories and deal with that hurt that's on both sides Um, we're not going to move forward to really fix the ills that are killing people today whether it be um, under the knee of a cop or in a hospital bed where someone's bleeding to death they're still having repercussions
0: and it's it's still happening and and I think the thing that me as a white person has kind of acknowledged is that you know every time there is a black death and by police brutality or whatever the case may be it's always something that kind of goes and comes with social media and you know i go to the protests and then i think about it and then i you know move on to the next whatever social issue is next essentially and i think that one thing that I wanna do as a white person is keep this in my mind all the time because I don't have to live with this. I don't have to live with the fear of going out and and the fear of police or the fear of, you know, my health being at risk because of the color of my skin. But I don't wanna live in a world where I have to have children that, you know, could potentially have that fear, you know, if I am if I marry someone of color or even just, you know, I want to be a teacher. I don't want to have my students have this fear of, you know, just the way our society has kind of, has become and has enacted. I don't want to have my students come to me and say like, miss, I don't, I'm scared to do this or miss, I don't want to talk to the police officer because of that. So, yeah. you know, I I think also part of why i wanted to have this conversation with you is because i wanted to give people a better understanding of what african americans are dealing with every single day of their lives and i understand how exhausting this conversation can be for you because it's something that you you were born into and you you, didn't, you don't ever get to tap out. You don't ever get to get over it with the social media craze. You don't ever get to just have that sigh of relief, you know, once justice is served for that one person because it's it's essentially, not that I wanna say it's gonna happen again, but you know, we're humans and we're faulty and our system is broken. And I think that I wanna make it part of you know, my life to at least do whatever I can to make it better, or at least carry that burden a little bit too, because I just don't think that it's fair um, and it's not just, Um, but I I do believe and I think that we both agree that education is the at most important thing. So I think that having this conversation and, you know, discussing this is definitely gonna shed some light and some better understanding on not only the healthcare system, but just our society in general. Um, so I, I just kind of want to ask, as like we're wrapping up, what would you tell those who kind of maybe what kind of advice would you give to those of color and those uh, you know white people who want to be allies, who want to help out, even to me, like what can I do better?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think this is going to be hopefully a very frank answer um, because I've gone through a number of emotions over the past few weeks where um, I mean tired is not even the word like it's it's not even t- it's not exhausted it's just I'm through I'm just like I, I mean there are times when I feel if I had the means I would just Pack my crap and go like, I'm just through, you know, and I think that it is not uh, people of color, African-Americans, Africans in Canada. It is we are done. We have skin in the game. We have had skin in every type of civil rights movement, every movement toward equality that has ever been seen on this continent. Right. We are in the anti slavery movement, the the suffrage movement, Jim Crow. Um, we're done. LG. Yes. Oh, the tr- yes. All the of LGBTQ it. plus movement. Yeah, you're, <laughs> exactly. You guys are there like, at the forefront all the time. I, We're so through. We're just over. You know what I mean? Like, what else do we have to do? We have been run over, lynched, um, burned like we have our souls, our sweat, blood and tears in this game. I honestly. I'm putting this on you guys. White people have to step up and put some skin in the game, because if you don't even see. And I know there's some people that I just, I will never get through to. You will never get through to. And even I remember as a little girl, like um, when people would call me out of my name, I used to remember just being like, the world's going to get better because they're just going to die. And then all the racist people will die. And then we'll always, no, they don't. They have kids. They teach their kids the same horrible things. And we're still in the same situation. So i feel like people of color we've had our we've had skin in this game for centuries i think it's incumbent on white people to really step it up um if you are comfortable with the inequality that this country your country lives and works by if you're comfortable with the oppression of people, if you're comfortable knowing that people die because of lack of access to health care, that people die because they, you know, have a broken tail light, that people die for reasons that you yourself would not get stopped for, maybe get a pass, would walk out of the hospital scot-free, then I, if you're comfortable with that, then I can't help you. But if you're not comfortable with that and even there's an ounce in you that's like, this is kind of messed up, then get your ass out there and vote then go to the library and pick up the books. I can't, I'm not giving you books there. The internet is there for you. Again, put some skin, time, energy, and effort in the game. The internet is there. Pick up those books that talk about, you know, we use these terms, white fragility, white privilege. What is it? Go get those books and you read them because you have to learn for yourself and have those moments of yourself when you really see and understand the history and how this totally stupid construct of race has been created and has manipulated all of our lives. Um, that it's time, you know, people sit in that uncomfortable feeling of this system that's been created. And if any of this bothers you, you have to do something about it. And whether that's voting, marching, using your money in a different way, stop supporting these companies that support oppression and inequality. There are so many things, but I'm a, I put this on you guys. This, this is your fight. We fight every single day. Um, there was a black man in New Jersey who uh, was pulled over unarmed, was shot by a New Jersey cops literally yesterday. This is our every day. So when I say I'm tired, I'm tired. I I fight every day. I fight with my education. I fight with giving women access. I fight with my words. I need you guys to do the same. 100%
0: I I couldn't agree more and no I think it's it's the best thing to say especially to a lot of us listeners we're all in university we're all you know making our way in the world why not do a better job of that and making sure that in whatever career you choose or whatever path is yours to make it accessible and inclusive and you know, yes. just anti-racist in general, whether you're in business or, or um, medicine right. or education or whatever it is, just to give people that platform and let people, you know, have their place, speak their mind, feel comfortable. I think, in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is just like, you know, how you should be as a person, but people don't understand that. So, i i 100 appreciate that and i i want anyone who you know is african-american or of color to just take time to take care of themselves because i can imagine yeah because we are
1: overwhelmed (laughs) this is overwhelming and it's like i i'm in here with one of my um fellow attendings and she literally was like is your life really like this and I'm like, yeah, my life is really like this. Like, we don't talk to each other. And she's, I would consider her a friend. But because we all grow up so sensitive to race, we don't have these conversations with each other with about, like, what it's like to be black in Canada, what it's like to be black in the United States. And I feel that everyone's missing out. I mean, there's enough research to show that when you like invite people of color, when you invite women on like a team or some type of group effort, it's better. It's better. So we're all missing out. You know, when if you have a company and you bring on because you know, we bring different experience and thought process and culturally um, sensitive we bring like a, a, a swag. We all do better. And if you don't get that by now, if you're not willing to step out of your comfort zone again, I might. I'm not talking to you like I'm talking to the people who want to change, who want to do better, who want to have more meaningful, fulfilling, rich lives. And I think we do that when we're inclusive of each other. I think life is just better with everyone in it. You know a
0: hundred percent, and I feel like you know, all those white guys that kind of founded us
1: really did a poor job. <laughs> yeah. so. I hear that, and I'm like, <laughs> you realize there were people. Um, where was I the other day because it's tense around here lately? Um, I'm in New York, I was somewhere, I don't remember, I think it was Home Depot or something, and this woman, it was a white woman, she told this. I, I don't know, I guess she was Mexican. She was like, go back to Mexico to someone. And we were like, you go back home. She was here, for, she was on this country before you. Like, again, education is everything. Like that whole founder concept like trips me out because no, there were actually people and governments and community here before all of us. So it's it's better when we just all work together. I like it more. I like it more when my circle is diverse, you know? So we gotta do better.
0: 100%. And I think that that's kind of the best thing to like end this conversation on is just, we just gotta do better. And whatever facet that is for you, because you know, we're so global and the world is so big and everyone's place is so different, but if everyone makes their place a little bit better, We're just going to have an
1: inclusive.
0: Yes. um, We're just going to have a better, a better
1: society,
0: a better place for our children to live. Um, Yeah. But I just wanted to thank you like so incredibly much for coming and talking. this was helpful. So helpful. And I'm sure that (laughs) People are going to come to you and just thank you for, you know, all of your work and just for being a, a place for women to feel safe and especially black women. I think that it's so important that there are more people like you in the world.
1: Um, thank you. So is there, do you want to shout out your social media? Yes, I would love to. Um, my Instagram is Dr. Camila Says. So that's D R K A M. E-E-L-A-H says, S-A-Y-S. So Dr. Camila says, and if you're in New York and you need an OBGYN, then come to my practice. It's Cala Women's Health. Calla like the flower, Cala Lily. But follow me on social media. I think that's the best way to get in contact with me. It's Dr. Camila says, I love connecting with people, especially internationally. Um, so that's that's the best way to get me.
0: Amazing. Okay, well, I just wanted to thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We so appreciate all your work. Um, Before we go, I can't forget to mention My Plus One. My Plus One is a sexual pleasure company that encourages everyone to get easy and affordable pleasure products at their local retailer. Check out your local Walmart Canada for product availability. As we close the episode, I really want to encourage everyone who took the time to listen to this to share this episode with your friends and family, continue the conversation, Uh, educate yourself on systematic racism, how it's implemented into the institutions that you go to or you participate in, how is it present in your workforce, really learn how to become an ally, educate yourself, educate the people around you. Um, and feel free to use this episode as a tool, share it with your friends, post screenshots of you listening to it. Um, and definitely go follow Dr. Kamala Phillips on Instagram. We will tag her at ladies. Let's talk about sex. I really appreciate everyone taking the time to listen to this podcast. Thanks for listening and please do take care of yourself.